Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast about cinema in the Criterion Collection. I'm Matt Peterson, joined by Nate Myers. Tonight, Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, released in 1975. Based on the 1844 novel The Luck of Barry Lyndon by William Makepeace Thackeray, Kubrick's screenplay chronicles the rise and fall of a young Irishman in the late 1700s, played by Ryan O'Neill, including his humble beginnings as a rascal in love to an aristocrat by marriage only, and the deceptive machinations it took to arrive at such a status. Deliberate pacing, painterly compositions, and revolutionary low-light cinematography by John Alcott redefine the period picture heavily influenced by the extensive prep work for Kubrick's Jettison Napoleon biopic. The film has become only more respected with time and has found its rightful place among Kubrick's best films. Released by the Criterion Collection in 2017, in an impressive two-disc edition, Kubrick's meticulous work is finally presented in its original aspect ratio of 1.66 to 1. Join Nate and me, as we laud the style and title of Barry Lyndon. So Nate, I, I considered doing that intro with a, a fake British accent, but decided to not embarrass myself horribly, uh, which is probably a good call. Um, so I, you know, given Barry Lyndon is uh, a fellow Irishman, uh, one of your countrymen, I'll throw it to you. What uh, what are you? <laughs> what do you have to say for yourself uh, in terms of? I blame the British. I blame the British for everything. That's <laughs> so. The the fall of Barry Lyndon is entirely the the result of the English monarchy, and that's where it's all started. So. <laughs> Again, I'll throw it to you. Just first impressions on Barry Lyndon, thoughts, uh, your personal connections to this film, and. And uh, we'll we'll get underway with our conversation here. I first saw this film when I was extremely young. I think I it was uh, shortly after Braveheart had come out, uh, so within about a year of that. So I'm probably 13 at the time when I first see this film, and I didn't really know much about it. I I was aware of the fact that it was uh, a, a historical drama, and I chose it as a film I rented to see for that very purpose. And I was aware that the title character was an Irishman. Uh, as a matter of fact, the phrase I remember very clearly was an Irish rogue. And I didn't know what the word rogue meant. I think I associated it with meaning that he was some sort of freedom fighter or that he was some kind of rebel that was chasing out the English from Ireland or something like that. I thought I was going to be watching a film about some kind of proto-IRA hero and then I started watching the movie and very quickly realized this is not the movie I thought I rented. Um, <laughs> but I so my first experience of it, I guess, was one of utter uh, confusion and just confoundment. I, I wasn't aware of what I was watching. I was waiting for it to become something else. It never did. Uh, there are obviously some battle scenes in it, but they're very small and brief and they're early and then they go away. And I was thinking I was going to be watching a sort of big epic war film, and that was not what I was watching. Uh, but I've come to really appreciate this film and certainly appreciate the technical marvel of this film in a way that I don't think I could understand at the time when I first saw it, uh, just not really understanding the the revolutionary aspect of its 
visual imagery, right? But uh, it's a great film. I think it's a, I think it's one of Kubrick's best, and is uh, obviously one that's grown in reputation. I think over the past twenty years, particular maybe twenty five years. Uh, but it's been I think um, a film that's rightly kind of gained this reputation uh, from film buffs and from filmmakers. Yeah, I would agree. I I would say my experience is quite similar to yours. I mean, I saw this. Uh, as a teenager, uh, it was really kind of a shocking film the first time you see it because it is so deliberately paced, right? And and one could say it's not very involving uh, upon first viewing. And and it left me fairly cold the first time I saw it. And, and again, I recognized the technical achievements. And uh, once I got more into cinematography and kind of came back to it, you know, I, I really appreciated it on that level. But it, it is a very cold, methodical, kind of distant film. And, and one can say that many of Kubrick's films kind of fall into that camp. Uh, I, I find Kubrick to be a fairly emotional filmmaker at times. I mean, his style certainly doesn't uh, um, have that flair to it. You know, it's, it tends to be a very technical, deliberate style, but his films evoke very strong emotions in, in, in me as a viewer, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, and, and this film has become more powerful, uh, to me with, with the passage of time as well. Um, it's, it's a film that is really, it's very much an experience, right? It's, it's very much something you have to just kind of let wash over you, uh, you have to really, I think, be in the right mood to uh, go along with the pacing and, and go along with the style of this film. And, and as you said, it, it may sell itself as a sort of war epic, uh, something, you know, the Seven Years' Wars is uh, an integral part to this film, but it's anything but that, right? I mean, this is an examination of one man, his rise and fall, and ultimately it's boiled down to that. Um, it's interesting how this film has become more respected with time because at the time, critically, I think the reaction was quite mixed and ultimately I, I believe it made money, but it was seen as kind of a disappointment, especially coming off of 2001 and Clockwork Orange and, and, uh, um, other pictures that came prior to this that seemed to make more of an impact. And I, in a way, this film is kind of ahead of its time, uh, a lot like a lot of Kubrick's films and it's, it ages like a fine wine. Right. So I, I think it's reputation is deserved and it's, it's one of my favorite Kubrick films for sure. Yeah, there's a couple of thoughts I have on this that I think would be good for us to explore in our conversation here, Matt, which is obviously to try to figure out why this film works the way it does and could it work in a different format? I was Whenever I've watched this the last few years, I've, I've thought to myself that this could easily be a BBC Masterpiece Theater production in yeah. terms of the, the source material and just you know, very stately, nicely costumed uh, kind of TV production that could have been a miniseries at the time or uh, could have um, maybe been made into a, a, a two-part story or something like that. Uh, but... There's something very different in the quality here. And, of course, now if I was thinking if it was made today, this could be transformed into a, you know, a 
10 part Netflix miniseries, you know, or something like that. But I don't know that it would work as well in those formats. And I think the way Kubrick presents the material, not just in terms of the visuals of it, which I'm sure we're going to spend a good amount of time explaining how all the visual elements come together to make this one of the most uh, stunning pictures to ever watch. But in terms of the pacing, in terms of the the length of it, if you make this a two and a half hour film, I don't think it's as good of a film. If you make it a three and a half hour film, I don't think it's as good of a film. I think it hits almost exactly the right uh, the right length. And to that point, you know, one of the things you said this wasn't extremely well received. Uh, it wasn't a flop per se, but it wasn't a uh, a great smashing success commercially, and it was divisive with critics. It did actually get a lot of love from the Academy Awards. Uh, it was nominated for Best Picture and Director, and it, it won a, a series of technical awards. But Kubrick was not a man who ever hesitated to go and re-edit his work. He cut out a half hour of The Shining after it was released. He edited things in A Clockwork Orange, right? So either of the films around this, he he tweaked them, right? He tweaked 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. This is a film he never touched. And that's a fascinating point to me. I think on some intuitive level, Kubrick knew he had the right length and he had the right structure and he had the right setting for and tone for a scene. And it's a very deliberate pace. And at the same time, it's a pace that I think allows you to really take in the painterly quality of it, the way he holds a shot uh, and the way he doesn't cut so quickly allows you to explore this like you're you're. Uh, watching or, or looking at a an oil painting uh, in an art museum, right? You have time to explore this this uh, framing, and yes, he does zoom in. He, he or more of the point, he zooms out, right? He usually sets uh, starts in with what would be basically a detail of the image, and then pulls slowly out to t- show the context around it. Mm-hmm. But I think he guides us through it, but he allows us room to explore it which is partly why this world seems so fully realized and going any longer, or any shorter, I think makes this a lesser film. Yeah. It's interesting. In many ways you could say that this is Kubrick's most technically proficient film, or at least his most meticulous film. Uh, you know, it reminds me of a, there's a, a feature. Or feature. This or 2001. I mean, they both are pretty meticulous. Yeah, but but even two thousand one, yeah, you know, it does have a more verite quality to it at times, and I feel like this is just much more formalized. Uh, it's very very structured. I mean, even going so far as to count specific numbers of frames after lines are delivered during the editing process. Uh, the editor, there's a feature out on the Criterion release where the editor describes that. Uh, is something that they were doing. I mean, they were just literally cutting uh, based on numbers of frames and not necessarily, uh, you know, just a more subjective pacing of the film. So his perfectionism, I think, hits a new level with this picture. And that shows through and and i think the material benefits from it, i mean this is it's interesting because this is such a world that is so uh obsessed with appearance right obsessed with artifice obsessed with uh titles and and uh 
the right clothing and the right paintings on the wall and the right upholstery. And, and in many ways, the filmmaking reflects that, that uh, there's always, you know, in this point in history, it seems to be these layers of artificiality between people and between uh, that comes between social interactions. And, and it's never really about uh, truthful speech so much as it is about the subtext. And, and I think you can find some of the truth in that subtext, but it's very rarely, you know, stated explicitly. And, and this film just takes that to the next level with its filmmaking style, I think. And, and when you do get those moments of honesty, whether they be bursts of emotion or bursts of violence, the filmmaking reflects that as well, right? So the, the camera suddenly becomes handheld. I mean, I think about the confrontation between uh, Barry and, and Lord Bullingdon in the, uh, during the chamber music concert, right? I mean, that, that's one of the best moments in the film, I think, when he attacks him. Uh, it's just such a stunning break uh, in the text, you know, from a, just from a visual standpoint as well, how the camera uh, suddenly becomes uh, basically like a boxing match, you know, camera, right? And to see this mannered, meticulous, controlled world just suddenly decay like this is pretty fascinating. And, and the people present during that situation, it's like they, they don't know how to react to it. And I think we as the audience don't know how to react to it too, because up until this point, it's been such a formalized, uh, you could even say stuffy film experience. So it's interesting how, how I think Kubrick's style is greatly informed by the material and greatly informed by what he's trying to say with this picture, right? I mean, this is ultimately a picture about deception, I think. That's one of the primary themes I think about uh, when, when I think about this film. Just the fact that nothing in this world is real. Uh, but you do get moments of authenticity. So, I mean, I, not to say nothing is real, but you do get those little glimmers, right? So the relationship between uh, Barry and, and his son, Brian, and and the, the tragic end there, I mean, the, those feel like very impactful, real emotional moments. But beyond that, uh, there's not a lot of, of honesty to really cling on to in this film. So uh, it's an interesting marriage of the period and the themes and Kubrick's filmmaking style really becoming, you know, this really synergistic whole. Well, it's a film that's ultimately about, uh, you know, this Barry Lyndon, who, of course, before he becomes Barry Lyndon, is Redmond Barry, an Irishman that bluffs his way and and moves his way, cons his way into upper society, yeah. right? So in many ways, it's, a, it's about a con artist uh, of sorts. And thus you can see how that artificiality is very much front and center. And I think one of the points that really you're hitting at here, Matt, is the idea that yes, it's extremely technical and very formal and the aesthetic is very carefully designed to represent many of the mannerisms of that era, right? The 17th century uh, English upper class, but it does more than just simply represent it. It also has a wonderful way through the screenplay, through the direction 
uh, to comment on it, right? So this is, I think, one of the maybe the perfect examples of how you blend style and substance, right? That's that's one of the, always the big challenges in a highly mannered, stylized film is how do you let the style not get in the way of a theme or what get in the way of, of meaning? And the, the style itself just becomes the reason you're there. It's something like uh, Robert Rodriguez's uh, Sin City is a, 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 an example of something where you go like, wow, there's a lot of great style here, but it's to no real particular avail. The style's the only reason to really come watch this movie. And Barry Lyndon, in I think the hands of a lesser filmmaker could become just that, yeah. right? We come to see the movie, to see the pretty costumes, to see the Eng- the English countryside, right? But all of that is grafted into a real thematic purpose and intent through Kubrick's dis- uh, uh, discerning eye and through the way in which he decides to edit and the way in which he decides to cut into certain moments where all of a sudden that formality breaks apart. You mentioned uh, the example of the the brawl, right, that takes place between Barry Lyndon and Lord Bullingdon. But there's other moments, right? The the war has that. Uh, yep. The the just the chaos when uh, Lady Lyndon, after her son has died, uh, is going into great uh, pain after that suicide attempt, and the camera is just absolutely agonized with her, and she who's prior to this point been nothing more than kind of a stoic painting. Uh, has all of a sudden very, very human, right? So it hits home in that. But one of the things I think is fascinating in this film that maybe isn't always competent upon is just how Kubrick also lets these two juxtapositions of the chaotic camera work at some moments, the highly carefully choreographed camera work at other moments, both reflect sometimes the exact same thing. Uh, So let's take the example of violence. This isn't a particularly gruesome or graphic film, but it does have uh, moments of real war uh, that are taking place. The Seven Years' War and Barry's uh, uh, basically being conscripted by the Prussians after he abandons the the British. Uh, And you see how uh, the... The war is very much, very carefully choreographed, just, you know, following the maneuvering of the troops and the the very nice formalized marches, and then moments of just absolute chaos coming about. And it's sort of showing how, yes, there is uh, a kind of a beauty that takes place that also is a beauty of a very ugly thing. And, uh, you know, I think that's a fascinating point that he juxtaposes. And even how... When you see the the scene where they're they're whipping the one uh, soldier, the Prussian so- soldier that had done something, you know, tried to abandon his post or whatever it might be, you, know, you see this incredible brutality, but so very carefully composed with a, a steady cam and with just nothing really seeming to be out of the ordinary. It's considered civilized to cane him, but. Then you juxtapose that with men running around a battlefield and the camera's chaotic, right? So I think he just does a great job in terms of the form of revealing to us his commentary upon society. Uh, and it's, I think, a society, and not just a, uh, the comment on that particular society at that time, but I really think of just civilization in general and the, the challenge of our very human fallenness and the animal instinct that exists within a person alongside with manners, right? And how do we try to navigate those two elements of our humanity? 
Yeah, it's really our basis in, instincts and, you know, savagery dressed up, right? And and that's kind of uh, a way to characterize society at this point as well. Um, it's all very proper and formal, but uh, at the end of the day, it's it, we're still dealing with our base instincts. And uh, Kubrick's films in general, I, I think, deal with a lot of those base instincts in, in different ways. But... Um, yeah, we, we probably should, should just dive into the visuals here, right? And the cinematography. I mean, that is definitely, we've touched on it here and there already, but certainly I think what this film is probably most known for is its revolutionary visuals. Uh, it really redefined the period piece. I, I think, you know, when this comes out in 1975, no one had really seen anything like this, right? And, and I, it's really even hard to think of any other period pictures that capture this uh, sort of style and feel. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't feel like I've seen it. I don't feel like I've seen anything like it since either. Yeah, and and you mentioned, you know, a Masterpiece Theater, BBC production, something like that. I mean, you could see those types of productions really kind of ramping up maybe some of the more scandalous aspects of, of the story here, right? Where Kubrick never really falls into that. It's, it's, always very meticulous and and somewhat distant and somewhat cold in terms of how everything is is depicted um and there's a great consistency there i mean you may have brief moments of of violence or brief moments of um you know infidelity that are are somewhat shocking when when you see uh even you know, brief nudity or something during the course of the film. You don't entirely expect to see that, but it's even that is so formalized uh, that it becomes, again, just really sort of another thread in the tapestry, right? It's it's not um, it's not cheapened uh, or sensationalized in in, in any way. Um, but the visuals here. So John Alcott, I, I mentioned him before as a cinematographer uh just outstanding use of zoom lenses you you had mentioned the very painterly compositions so starting with a detail zooming out and and some of the frames just look like like oil paintings right like like you had mentioned i mean they just have a real uh museum-like quality to them and and the way the characters are posed and positioned within the frame uh one of the most striking images, I think, is when Lord Bullingdon comes to uh, revisit Barry Lyndon toward the end of the film. Then he's kind of slumped over in that chair in that in that um, in that room. Such a beautiful image and such an iconic image uh, from this film. But just the fact that Kubrick had uh, special lenses developed and adapted from from NASA lenses that were extremely fast, uh, 50 millimeter prime lenses and zoom lenses, of course, were used as well, as I had mentioned, they were able to capture just tremendous low light photography here. Right. So, uh, scenes that were entirely lit with candlelight and the film has a very otherworldly quality to it, especially in those segments and, and a real softness to it as well and, and and not distractingly so but uh it, it's a really beautiful and unique visual style and criterion's transfer here so on their 
their release. It's a new 4K transfer. I had mentioned in the correct aspect ratio, which is the first time it's been uh, released, at least in high definition, I think, in 166. So it's really outstanding. I believe, yeah, I believe the first DVD was 166. But what, was it? Okay. I, I thought they were all 170. Yeah. But that's always been a huge point of debate among cinephiles is, you know, what are the proper aspect ratios for Kubrick's films? There's been a lot of back and forth on that, and various home video releases have had different aspect ratios for uh, for several of his films, uh, including The Shining. I think The Shining was released in 4x3 at one point, and so um, lo- lots of, of controversy there. But I, I think the consensus generally is at this point that 166 is the original intended aspect ratio here, and it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, it, it's not it's not Academy, it's not 133, it's more... Uh, it's still widescreen, we still kind of get an epic feel to it but at the same time it does uh have that older style film quality to it by having more of a box-like frame uh but it, just from a, a cinematography standpoint it's one of my favorite pictures for sure uh so any thoughts on the visuals on your end nate well you know it's one of those things where you can t- clearly tell kubrick and elcott both took great care to compose and think through how would they represent that society. And one of the things they smartly did is they looked at the paintings of that time. Now, naturally, the paintings of that time are also themselves a subjective interpretation of the era. So are we really seeing what it was like in this actual historical area of the you know mid uh, you know 1700s? No, we're seeing... An interpretation based on an, another interpretation, but I do think that it, it goes a long way. I mean, the the, the two artists that I think uh, clearly we can say that Kubrick was drawing from were William Hogarth, and uh, that that shot you mentioned, Matt, of, of Barry Lyndon slumped over, is a direct reference to one of his paintings, uh, and then the other would be uh, Gainsborough, uh, uh, Thomas Gainsborough who did a lot of different portraits. And I think a lot of the close-ups and the two shots, all those that we see are very much taken from the portrait workings and the stylings of Gainsborough as well. So I think it just, uh, uh, you know, really clearly a man who did great research to really understand the visuals of that era in order to then bring them to us in a much more realistic way. And you mentioned the, the lenses of how important that was, obviously, just the the lighting and the, whether it's using the lighting from outside, whether it's using the lighting of the candles, really does I think cement us in the sense that we're watching a film that is close to being like it would have been shot right there with actual historical period and context, right? Uh, obviously, there are things they do that cheat, and there's you know ways you 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 try to force light in that you couldn't otherwise do. But you know, I just think that it it really is quite quite brilliant accomplishment and achievement here. But alongside that cinematography, I really think it's it's impossible to separate any one visual element to explain why this film looks as good as it does, uh, because yes, the cinematography rightly is revolutionary and, and talked about as such. But the cinematography doesn't work if the production designed by Ken Adam isn't also ex- astonishing, right? And yeah. I think about that in terms of something as simple as like the continuity on the candles, right? If you're if you're lighting with candles and you're doing multiple takes and you're then you're cutting between the different takes, right? 
if those candles aren't holding together, that would immediately start taking you out of the shot. The fact that Ken Adam was showing over and over, like having just boxes and boxes of candles to replace and to keep them so that they were steady between the different shots is one of those details that none of us is probably thinking about in terms of why these uh, visuals work well together, right? Uh, I think about the costumes, right? Uh, Milena Canonero and Ulla Britt Suderlund uh, is, uh, are the costume designers and how they made them seem very real and not just like, oh, they look pretty, but they, they look lived in, right? And so because they look lived in, uh, you really buy into the re- realism of this world. And I think all these different visual elements work together. And then the editing, of course, successfully blends it all together in a very nice pacing. Uh, so I, I guess I can't really separate any one visual element out from the other in this film. They're all excellent. They're all perfectly blended together. And uh, every single one of them rightly got an Oscar. And some remarkable location work too, right? I mean, uh, they were shooting in real castles and real period buildings and, and it definitely shows. And, and there's definitely some use of electric light in this film too. Not many scenes, but, you know, uh, these are dark, uh, dark spaces that they're shooting in frequently. So there has to be some, uh, some level of artificiality there to, to make it visually work. But, uh, yeah, it's just one of the greatest films visually of all time. I mean, I, I think there's no, no debating that at this point, but I'm glad you mentioned the production design and the costuming as well. And, and, and I would second the, the detailing you had mentioned with the costumes and how they, they really don't seem like movie costumes, right? They, they seem like something that were, that was plucked out of a museum and, and they just used it just, uh, it seems very worn and lived in and very authentic. So yeah, it, it's amazing work. And, uh, the carriages and the horses and all the accessories, you know, that are needed, to make all this uh, believable as well. All that stuff is there too. And it it looks amazing. So uh, yeah, the amount of work that went into this is, is pretty mind boggling, but uh, well, when you hear people talk about it, they mean, they all talk about this experience as being extremely valuable and good, Yeah, but also like a terror that brought nervous breakdowns and scarred them for life. You know? Yeah, that's probably uh, most, most Kubrick why. productions from, from the sounds of it. I mean, if you just watch the uh, behind-the-scenes documentary of The Shining. <laughs> but this one seems to be even more than the others. And I yeah. think it's precisely because it was so exacting, right? I mean, it's it just there was nothing that would come easily in this. I, I don't look at any part of this and say, well, that would have been easy. Uh, I think everything about it must have been an uphill battle. But at the same time, watching it, you don't necessarily sit there and go, boy, this feels very labored, like they're really working hard. I mean, it does seem to come across effortlessly. I think it's only when somebody understands, well, to light a shot with candlelight is not something you do, right? That people start to realize just how heroic an effort it was to make the film come across the way it does. Yeah. And just the um, the use of voiceover here, too, I, I think is worth mentioning. Michael Hordern uh, is the narrator throughout the film, and, and it's narrated in the in the past tense, which is kind of interesting as well. It really lends a storybook quality to the film, and again, 
creates sort of this distance. And as the viewer, you feel like you're watching something that has, it's very much something that has taken place, right? I mean, the film is always reminding you that this is in the past and this is a period picture and this is, uh, almost a fable. Like this is something that you need to pay attention to, to learn something from. Right. And, and the, the narration, I think does a very good job at, at creating that atmosphere, uh, right from that opening shot, that wide shot of, of the duel that leads to the death of, of Barry Lyndon's uh, father. And, uh, that's, probably a good segue into just discussing the cast and discussing the performances here. Uh, you know, we have to start with Ryan O'Neill. He is someone I think has been criticized a lot over the years for this picture as someone that maybe didn't sell the performance the way people expected or sell the character. Uh, he's not very emotional. He's, he's quite cold but the picture's that way too, right? I, that, it's a criticism I, I never quite understood. I mean, Ryan O'Neill is, I think, a very functional actor. And is he one of the greatest actors of all time? I mean, I don't think anyone's going to say that. But here, I, for me, I think he works well. And I, I do think that, as you said, you know, Barry Lyndon as a character is a cheat, right? He's a very dishonest person. Deception is really a normal part of his, uh, his everyday life. And I do think that that character has to have a certain coldness to him, a certain distance to him, uh, to be workable. The film is not condemning him necessarily, but the film is asking the audience to do the condemnation or to perform the condemnation, I think, uh, because the film has a very, again, methodical sort of calculating quality to it. And it's just kind of saying, here's this man's life. Here's what he did to have to get to this position and really asks the audience, is this worth it? Is this a good idea? Is this the, the way to live properly? And I think Ryan O'Neill's performance if it was too emotional and too flamboyant and too too much of a focus here, I think it would would have robbed the picture of some of that outreach that it does toward the audience to really fill in those gaps. So I, I, let's just start with Ryan O'Neill. I mean, what, what are your your thoughts and feelings on his his performance? Well, Matt, this was one of the questions I was going to ask you, so I'm glad you brought it up. And we're, uh, I guess you already answered the question in terms of you think that O'Neill does work in this film, because I'm not sure. I, I can see both sides of it, and I, I, I'm genuinely not convinced that he was the right person to cast. I, obviously, he was, at the time, a very big star. And so there'd be a certain sense of getting his name on the poster and getting some audiences in and hopefully... Uh, landing you some box office results, right? But he wasn't a particularly good actor. He wasn't a bad actor. I, I really liked him in uh, Paper Moon, which he did right before this. Yeah. Uh, but it, it definitely, you could tell he's an American doing an accent. The accent's not, I think, perfectly successful. It's not horrible. It's not Kevin Costner and Robin Hood bad, but it's it's not exact. I mean, you could tell it seems like he's trying to do an accent at times here, right? Um 
but in a certain sense, that can also be said to kind of lend to the qualities that you're describing of the character. Redmond Barry is a, a canard, right? And so, in a certain sense, the unsuitability to Ryan O'Neill for this part, kind of in a unexpected way, makes the character work for what the film is yeah. and what it's trying to say about him. I don't doubt for a second that if you, you're just to name a couple of other people that might have been available and capable of this part at the time, if you had a Michael Caine or if you had an Albert Finney give this performance, that they would do a better job. They're better actors and they're more capable of things. But they also might not have succeeded in this unintentional way. I don't know that it's intentional that Ryan O'Neill was cast with this idea in mind that he would convey this as well as he does, and it could be just a happy accident. Yeah, Uh, So I'm I'm kind of torn and unsure of what to think of him. Yeah, I think, and sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, I I think it's kind of a happy accident. And and maybe this is Kubrick's part of his genius, right? He kind of knew what he was doing by casting this person. Um, So in this sort of subversive way, it does work. But I would agree with you. I mean, there are plenty of other actors that could have done a better job and maybe brought more nuance and more power to the picture by providing a a, a stronger performance. But I I think he works. I mean, I'm not someone that is terribly distracted by his performance or think, you know, thinks that the film suffers because he's in it. Uh, I, as you had characterized it, uh, I think it, it works in an unexpected way. So, Right. I think even in a certain sense, because he's not as powerful of an actor as Albert Finney, who I guess if I was, if I was kind of cast this part, I guess I'd say Albert Finney is, is the go-to um from that era, he was kind of handsome and dastardly and obviously just a very talented actor. But uh, in a certain sense, he might have also been so powerful that he overwhelms the story, whereas I think Kubrick wants Barry Lyndon to be overwhelmed ultimately by the society and to, to be uh, ultimately, I wouldn't go so far as maybe to say a victim because he, he makes his own choices, but is certainly defeated by the system that he's worked so hard to conquer and to insert himself into. He winds up actually being uh, taken down from it, right? Because he couldn't really ever master fully what this society expected of him, how to live and how to behave. And we should mention you know, some of the other performances too. I, I, I really think some of the small sort of bit performances or, or cameos or whatever you want to call them are really outstanding. I mean, I think this film really shines in some of those smaller moments. Um, you, know, you mentioned Marissa Berenson as Lady, Lady Linden. She had barely has any dialogue in this film. She is quite statuesque, right? She doesn't have much opportunity to emote. And then the few moments that she does get are very effective, but it her, it's all about her presence, right? And, and she has a very powerful presence in this film. I mean, one of my favorite moments of the picture is when she meets Barry Lyndon for the first time and they're, you know, at the gambling table there, but she goes out onto that kind of patio area and he comes out to kiss her. And uh, it's such a a magical moment. And and the the marriage of the images and the music, um, we should mention, you know, tremendous use of classical music throughout this film. But that moment in particular is, is one of my favorite moments in all of Kubrick's films, actually. 
there's a real simplicity to it, but a real power to it as well. And, and you, you feel the kind of magnetism between these two people, right? And that's not an easy thing to pull off, I think, when you're in a corset and these dresses and, and all made up. Uh, that's You're trying to evoke this image of polite society, right? Uh, but still have those emotional moments come through. And, and I think she does a very good job. Uh, but I, yeah, I think her performance is, un, is, is unfortunately ignored because yeah. for your, like you said, it is very statuesque, but that's not an easy thing to do. I think yeah. sometimes people feel like a performance is only good insofar as you're able to read lines, which is just utterly absurd, right? Uh, go in front of a camera and convey information without dialogue. That's real. That's real acting, and she does that a lot in this film. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things I, the the movie is not interested in a twentieth twentieth century perspective. It really isn't. It really is generally trying to show you the world of that time. And it's not anachronistic. And so a movie like this would often give her major scenes or show her as being maybe secretly more in control or just it would it would make comments or give her some sort of wink of what do we think here, you know, a few hundred years later about gender roles or about whatever. And this film doesn't. She plays a lady of that era and she plays it perfectly. And a lady of that era would be much more reserved, very careful what to say. Everything counts very, very significantly for her. And she gives you that sense of the tension. I mean, I think of the scene, one of my favorite scenes in the film is when she and Barry have just been married. And they're they're riding in the carriage and he's smoking. Yeah. And you can see uh, the way, and that's a scene where O'Neill does, I think, a really good job. You see the kind of smugness and the sense of, I've done it. And I, I, I've now, I don't need to even care about things anymore, right? And you can see how he's, he doesn't care about this woman now that he has her as a wife. She's, a, she, she's, she's a, served her purpose, right? And now she sits there and says politely after clearly not wanting the smoke to ask him. And he just blows smoke right in her face. And the way she handles that, the way she reacts, I think perfectly captures that character, that time period, and not with any sort of self-consciousness, uh, self-reflective uh, irony or anything like that. It just is giving you the character as she would have been in that time. So I think her performance is criminally underappreciated. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, she's she's great. And a few other just side performances, too. I uh, wanted to mention... Uh, Captain John Quinn, so Leonard Rossiter just has a very small role in the beginning of the film, but he is Redmond Berry's nemesis, right, uh, for the affections of Nora Brady. And he makes a big impact, His, especially during that duel, just how terrified he is in that scene is, is really very, very effective. Uh, and humorous. And humorous, too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there, there's plenty of humor in this film, too. We should mention that. I mean, it, it could be considered dark humor, but there are definitely comedic moments here uh, that are unexpected but very effective. And, and you can see, you can just see Kubrick, you know, behind the camera laughing at some of this stuff because uh, so much of it is is so absurd, especially these, uh, you know, these pistol duels and 
and how formalized, you know, the, the savagery was at that time. But uh, Leon Vitale is Lord Bullingdon. We, we have to mention him as well. Uh, some very powerful moments from him. We go back to that chamber music uh, scene the, prior to the brawl and his speech that he gives uh, condemning Barry Lyndon is, is very effective. And Vitale um, later went on to be Kubrick's personal assistant for many years and was very involved in uh, video releases of his films. Uh, so that kind of an interesting side note there. Uh, but a- any of those kind of small performances stand out to you, Nate? Well, I think uh, most of them are very good. Obviously, uh, Vitaly is the most significant of them. Maybe he's kind of the most showy part and he does extremely well, particularly when that duel comes uh, uh, at the end. And I really like how that duel is acted compared to the previous. There's a couple other duels that we see, right? The very first opening scene, which is all in a long shot. It's very uh, remote and un- uninvolved. We don't get a sense of the characters. And there's that very humorous, as you referenced, uh, the the voiceover kind of with this ironic detachment from it and yeah. commentary that takes place. Uh, and then you get a little closer when you have the duel with Barry and uh, Quinn. And it's just the, the way that that plays out is very different than what we've seen before, but still there isn't the same level of stakes in that particular scene. Right. And the way it drives home the performance of Vitali in that third duel at the climax, so to speak, uh, really, I think captures how real this thing is and in a certain sense serves as the perfect kind of uh, thematic touchstone of this film in terms of, yes, you create this system, you create these little uh, uh, norms, right? Okay, we're going to resolve a conflict. I I come for my satisfaction. Uh, When you get to it and he has that misfire and the the sheer incompetence of him, right? And the way he throws up, all of that is just brilliantly acted and the working with the Sarabon by Hundle is absolutely chilling. Right. And at the same time, we know that Bullingdon is not going to be the one that loses that duel. We already have known it's been communicated to us that Lyndon is going to lose everything in this, right? We don't know exactly what or how, but we understand that Lyndon is the loser at the end of the day. It's very interesting though, that that is one of the few moments in the film that Lyndon truly shows sympathy and mercy, right? I mean, he chooses to fire his pistol to the side uh, to even the stakes again. And, and it's the perfect counterpoint to the duel with, with John Quinn in the beginning, right? Because uh, he's giving... Bullingdon the same opportunity he was given as a young man to proclaim that satisfaction has been obtained and to call the whole thing off. And, and like Lyndon, Bullingdon chooses not to do that. So his prior sins come back to haunt him in an unexpected way. Right. And I do, I do love how the film really kind of comes full circle in, in some ways in that scene and as you mentioned, it's just a brilliantly staged scene. It's a very slow, you know, methodical presentation of what's going on, but it's so riveting. Uh, and the, the suspense is 
incredible. And as you said, you, you get a sense of, you kind of know what's going to happen, but at the same time, you don't, right? You don't know. You know yeah. It, it, I wouldn't call it suspense in that scene. It's more just a, a pure dread. I mm-hmm. don't even know if I'd call it suspense. I think if, I think that scene might be the most effective scene I've ever uh, uh, found in any movie that gives you the sense of what is it like to have this crushing dread falling upon you. Yeah, that may be a better way to characterize it. Yeah, it's it's very, very powerful. Uh, and you mentioned Liam Batali's performance there is just great too. So a really dazzling way to end this picture, right? It's It's the boss fight without the fight really i mean there's a fight but it's it's not in a way that you would anticipate necessarily and and the film has a very subdued ending to it uh we end on that really crushing a sort of freeze frame of of a one-legged barry linden getting into that carriage and it's again this idea of coming full circle you know he's going back to ireland after everything he's been through and we get really a sort of cold, detached assessment by the narrator at the end. You know, here's what happened, and and that's pretty much the end of the picture. So it's it's a film that I've probably come back to. Other than 2001, I, I would say I've come back to this picture more than any other Kubrick film, and and I was very very happy to see it come to Criterion. So. Well, Matt, before we get into the Criterion release, I'm curious if uh, I could ask you a question, which has been the burning question for me as I've been looking forward to our conversation here. Oh, boy. Which is this. As you well know, and I'm sure those who listen to this podcast are well aware, Kubrick, after 2001, was going to make a biopic on Napoleon. And this is often called the greatest film never made. There's the the book that was uh, released that has all the details about the screenplay and costume research. It's a magnificent book uh, that details uh, Kubrick's Napoleon, the film we never got. It was about to be made. Jack Nicholson was going to play Napoleon in it. And then the financing fell through after the commercial failure of the movie Waterloo starring Rod Steiger. Kubrick, of course, then took some of the research and just his fascination with the era and was able to transport some of that into then doing this adaptation of William Makepeace Thackeray's novel, The Luck of Barry Lyndon, and this is the film we've got. It is highly unlikely that we would ever be able to have had a universe where we both got Napoleon by Kubrick and Barry Lyndon by Kubrick. And so the question I ask you is this. I know what you're going to ask. Go would ahead. you rather have... <laughs> Yes. Would you rather have Napoleon or would you rather have Barry Lyndon? Uh, would you be willing to sacrifice this film to see a Napoleon film by Lyndon? By or excuse me, a Napoleon film by Kubrick? This is not fair. This is a this is a mean question. The question has been asked and it must be answered. <laughs> well, I know what, you, I know what your answered. answer. I know what your answer would be, uh, given your your fascination with Napoleon. Uh, I I don't know how to answer that. I mean, I, to sacrifice such a great film for a film that doesn't exist, I think is a pretty tall order. I mean, w- would I like to see a, a Stanley Kubrick Napoleon film? Of course. I mean, gosh, that would be 
an incredible dream. Uh, I don't know, Nate. I, I think... Hmm. Maybe so. Maybe so. I mean, as much as I love this film, as much as I like this film, to see Kubrick take on the subject of Napoleon, who's obviously a very complicated individual, uh, would be something that would be tremendously special. And who knows where he would have taken that, right? I mean, I, just as a, a, a historical figure, you know, as a fascination in terms of just studying this individual as a human being, Napoleon trumps Barry Lyndon, right? I mean, a fictional character. Uh, so uh, as much as I, I, I hate to say it, sure, why not? Uh, let's let's go for Napoleon. <laughs> well, you know, I will say it, it's a, it is a tough question. Of course, ideally you'd like to have both, but we don't live in that world, and so there's just no way. And I'm of the opinion that I don't want to see anybody try to make uh, Kubrick's script as a film, right? I just thought I think yeah, it's his, it's his movie. It never got realized. And there's, there's, I don't see any reason to do it. I know HBO was talking about doing that with Baz Luhrmann, who would be absolutely the last director <laughs> to take a Kubrick script to the screen. Um, but I, you know, it's, it's tough because there are things here, uh, that I think are so perfectly suited to Kubrick and only he could have brought this, this really rather un, unnoted uh, story to the screen, right? I mean, this is not a film that was, or this is not a, 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 a work of uh, fiction that was really calling for a cinematic adaptation or where one I think was inevitably going to come. It's quite likely that the story of Barry Lyndon may never have ever been adapted and been forgotten. I think this film is part of what makes it even known to people today. Uh, so it is a, a film that I think, boy, it, it's so brilliant and yet I also think to myself, wouldn't all the things that make it brilliant have been able to be imported into that Napoleon film, right? Yeah, uh, that's kind of what I was thinking of. What he did here. Yeah, like if you had the you level know, of production design and, and the, the visual mastery here and you applied that to a subject like Napoleon, which uh, it would be tremendous, right? And I, I think you could take some of the best qualities from this picture and fold them into Napoleon. Though I, I do wonder, just on a personal level or, or you know, on an audience level, would would that film be more impactful? Because it, it may ultimately be less relatable, right? Because it's such a larger than life figure. This idea of Napoleon, and uh, but I, it all depends on how Kubrick depicts him as a person, right? Or the performance that the actor gives right? that would either make that work for the audience or, or kind of be a point of distance for the audience. So I, in a way, this film, the idea that it is a, about an everyman, right. That ascends to aristocracy and then his, his fall can make it more relatable to an audience. I, th I think on that level. Uh, but yeah, it's a tough question. I mean, that's, that's uh, something that we will never truly know the answer to, I suppose. Yes. Well, I, I don't know what I, I honestly am kind of half and half on this because you go, boy, you, you do know you lose a great film 
in order to hopefully get a great film, right? Uh, you know, you don't have a guarantee you're going to get a great film. Uh, that something could have gone wrong with the Napoleon adaptation. Uh, but boy, there's just the thought of seeing a, a young Jack Nicholson take that part uh, and how he could have maybe made it work with the Kubrick. And, you know, obviously we did see how they collaborated years later with The Shining. So it is just a, a fascinating what if of movie history. But in order to get that, we probably would have to lose Barry Lyndon and... Uh, I think it would be worth it, but one never knows. Yeah. So this is a release that Criterion was rumored to be putting out for a while, so it was really exciting to actually see it happen. And uh, not the first time Kubrick was in the collection. But uh, there's a lot of lot of features here. So just to touch on a few, I mentioned the new transfer. Uh, there's. Uh, the original mono soundtrack, but there's also the 5.1 remix available on the disc. There's a new documentary uh, on the film. There's a, an interview with the editor, Tony Lawson, which I had brought up before. It's a really interesting little piece. And there's a, a feature out on the visuals and production design and just a whole bunch of material. I, I, I'm not going to go through the whole list here, but it's one of my favorite Criterion releases, and I think I've gone through pretty much everything on this set, maybe not every single piece, but uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on, on Criterion's release, Nate? I second everything you just said. It is, I think, one of my favorite. The artwork is great, of course, the, the classic image for the poster, and uh, great, yep. great transfer. Uh, when I first watched this on the Blu-ray, it was just wonderful to see. Uh, Having the previous Blu-ray where it was in the 178, that always irritated me on the aspect ratio there. And then having uh, the old DVD, I actually kept the old DVD because it was in 166. And to finally get rid of it and replace it with this was fantastic. So it felt great. And I, I really great. I mean, every single one of the special features is uh, really good. I just went on to highlight the, the making of documentary that Criterion produced. Uh, it's very well done and it's got nice anecdotes. It's got a good collection of interviews and you know, stills from the production. It's just a very nicely done making of documentary. All right, Nate. So does Barry Lyndon belong in the Criterion Collection? Yes. I don't see how you could argue it doesn't. Yeah, I would agree. Nothing else to say there. <laughs> it's a simple answer. <laughs> it's a great film. Yeah, it's a great film. And, so and, and, obviously, and obviously not just great, but also important. I mean, it's it's important as far as what it did for cinematography, and yeah, it's just great. And it's and it, I, we haven't really talked about it, but a lot of directors are influenced. I mean, a Scorsese, a Wes Anderson. I mean, just many different directors with many different voices have drawn inspiration from this film and applied it into their own filmographies. So, Nate, what's what's our next title? I don't think uh, I don't think we knew. Mulholland Drive. Did you tell me that at some point? Yeah, I sent a text. Oh gosh, I missed that. Somehow. Honestly, this is like the most perfect way to introduce that as the next title. Like where nobody knows what the hell's going on. It's a David Lynch movie. Nobody knows what the hell's going on in them. So, all right. Well, thanks for listening to our conversation this evening. Our next conversation will be on David Lynch's Get Real, Mulholland Drive. And I'll meet you at Winkies. 